Good morning. Thank you, Nathan, for sharing that. Am I on? Okay. Nathan and I are good friends. We talk quite often, and I appreciate him being vulnerable and sharing his story of brokenness and sin. And it's interesting, you don't even know why you're broken, and it's sin. And then God is in the business of rescuing us. Keep praying for young men like Nathan who, if it weren't for the Lord working through this church or other good churches like this one, wouldn't know the end of that despair. Keep praying for young men like, like Nathan. Before I start, just a couple things. One is, uh, if you didn't know, my name is Mark Liebert. If you don't all know me, I am serving as one of the elders here. Scott's away. I'm glad to preach. I'm happy to do this when I get the chance. This is, this was going to be Ruth Axum's last Sunday with us. The weather had other plans. And so Ruth is not here today, I don't think. I don't see Ruth. If you get a chance, please say goodbye and thank you to Ruth, even if you do it over social media. Ruth has served as a godly woman in this congregation for many years in all sorts of ways. And she has sold her home and she's moving to warmer climates. I guess uh, this weekend was a good reminder of partly why she's leaving. But would you do that, please? Would you reach out to Ruth and let her know how much you appreciate and what she's done here and how she's served? I think she'd appreciate that. Uh, as was mentioned, we are starting a new series, Collapse. There are study guides in the back connections room if you want to pick one of those up. And that will help you through the five weeks so that you can study along during the week and not just get what is taught here on Sunday morning. I think that's important because really 35 minutes, which is what I timed this to be, 35 minutes on Sunday morning is certainly not enough for any of us to be spending time in God's Word and hearing from the Holy Spirit. But since it is a new series, uh, and it's based on a relatively unknown book of the Bible, Lamentations, how many of you can quickly turn to Lamentations? Don't raise your hand, the three of you that can. <coughs> and I'm kicking off the series. I want to provide some background. Background for the book so we understand where it fits and where we're going with this. In fact, I thought it would be helpful to give a brief overview of the entire Old Testament. Now, don't laugh. I mean brief, a brief overview of the entire Old Testament, since we don't spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament. And that'll help set the stage for where we're going with the series. So if you're not as familiar with Old Testament history, anything that happened before Jesus, this should help. At least that's my intention this morning. So let's jump in. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I told you we we're going to start in the Old Testament. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are a high-level picture, a macro picture of what God is doing in the world. They cover a large span of time. It's everything from creation to the fall into sin, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the dispersing of the nations throughout the earth. That's the first 11 chapters, a macro high-level picture of what God is doing. <clears throat> then we zoom in from Genesis 12 on to one person. Who is that? Abraham, exactly. And we look at God's work in and through Abraham and his descendants to reveal his plans and purposes for the world, how he would send a future redeemer and Messiah through, of course, the line of Abraham. That would be Jesus. And so Genesis 12 on, we go from the macro level down to the micro level. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. His son Isaac and his grandson Jacob lived in Canaan, what we now know as the land of Israel. Jacob was renamed later Israel. That's where we get the people of Israel and the 12 sons of Israel. Jacob was renamed to Israel. He and his 12 sons moved to Egypt in 1875 B.C. All these are B.C. due to a famine in the land of Canaan. And you'll remember that Joseph, one of his sons, was the right-hand man of Pharaoh at the time, which is why they were welcomed there. But after Pharaoh died, the people of Israel, the descendants, 
became a slave to the pharaohs for about 400 years. That lasted a little over 400 years. Finally, they came out in the Exodus under Moses in about 1445 B.C., if you're keeping track of the time. The period of the judges then lasted for the next 400 years. The people of Israel didn't have a king right away. You remember that? It wasn't for a while until they said, we want a king like all the other nations. So you had judges like Joshua, Gideon, Deborah, Samson, and Samuel. And that lasted about 400 years until the first king of Israel was Saul. That's right, in about 1043 B.C., or about 1000 B.C. So you have Abraham in 2000 B.C., 1000 years until they get their first king, Saul, in 1043 B.C. Of course, David replaces him. He wasn't worthy. David replaces him as king, and his son Solomon reigned until 931 B.C. Then the kingdom was divided. Remember that? You've got... Solomon builds the temple. They have their greatest prosperity ever. He dies, and his son does not reign in the same way he does, so the kingdom is split. The northern kingdom of Israel with their capital in Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. Judah in the south maintains the line of David and Solomon. In the north, it's not so. The north was characterized by kings like Ahab and his wife Jezebel, They were not great, which is why you don't have too many daughters named Jezebel, although it happens every now and then. In fact, I have a friend this week who told me their great niece was just named Delilah. I thought, okay, but if you know your Old Testament history, not a real good name. (laughs) So Ahab and his wife Jezebel with their capital in Samaria, Elijah and Elisha were the two main prophets at this time. You'll remember the stories of them ministering to the northern kingdom. But They had little impact to call the people to repentance. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came, conquered the northern kingdom, destroyed Samaria and took the people uh, and deported them. Isaiah ministered right at that time, right at that critical period where the northern kingdom was falling to, to Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah, on the other hand, lasted quite a bit longer until the Babylonians came under King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? They carried out a series of military conquests and sieges and deported the people in 605 B.C., 597, 586, and 581. That was the last of it. Daniel went into exile after the first deportation in 605. We're familiar with Daniel and his stories. So he's he's in Babylon right after 605. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, ones that you should know, they ministered, ministered during this time of the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Judah would remain in captivity in Babylon for about 70 years until Babylon itself fell to the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember that? Some of you remembering your ancient history. Ezra and Nehemiah then brought the people back to the Promised Land in about 444 BC. They rebuilt the wall and a smaller version of the temple, not the great temple under Solomon. King Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians gave them permission to come back, if you remember. And then the last prophet of the Old Testament in our last book, Malachi, was written about 430 B.C. The next 400 years, there were several 400-year sections in the Old Testament. The next 400 years are called the years of what? Silence. Because there's no prophet of God from about 430 B.C. until who shows up? Who's the next prophet that shows up? John the Baptist. Exactly. Of course, the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner to the Messiah. So that brings us up of the 2,000-year period from Abraham until Jesus. Lamentations fits in your Bible between Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and it's comprised of five poems, five chapters, 
that are written in response to the Babylonians' complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. That's where this series fits in. And it reflects the fact that many of the people had been killed or starved to death because the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did was siege, put a siege to the city, not let anyone in or out, and basically starve them into submission. And there's some pretty gross things that happened during that time which you can read about on your own. But after they broke through the wall, killed a lot of people by the sword, and forcibly removed a bunch of others into exile, uh, the best that they had, the brightest, the smartest, uh, those who were up and coming, all of them removed into exile and taken to Babylon. It was their way of making sure that this, this outpost didn't rise up again against them. It's called Lamentations. Because in the Greek Bible, 200 years before Jesus was born, called the Septuagint, it had a title called the Lament of Jeremiah, or Jeremiah's Lament. And it expresses deep grief and pain in in the face of judgment and suffering for sin. That's what the book's about. And so Lamentations is a great title for it. But it also holds on to hope through an abiding faith in God's sovereign purposes, character, and plans. You know the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? comes directly from the text of Lamentations. So, what's interesting, the book doesn't name the author. The book never says it's written by Jeremiah. Many scholars think he's the author, though, and I'll give you just a few reasons. The context of the book is the fall of Jerusalem. That's right when Jeremiah was a prophet. It's the exact same time frame. Secondly, the style of the book is a lament, and Jeremiah was known for speaking uh, laments. Jeremiah 7.29 says, Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. Jeremiah 9, verse 10. I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation. And then Second Chronicles, written about Jeremiah, says Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, King Josiah. So a lament is something Jeremiah was known for. So it fits. It fits the genre of what he would have done. Thirdly, the content of the book includes several statements about weeping for the people of Israel. And Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a good reason. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is what Jeremiah says. And then in Lamentations, chapter 2, we read, My eyes are spent with weeping. And, And then Lamentations 3, My eyes flow with rivers of tears. So it fits Jeremiah in so many ways. And then lastly, if you look at the ancient Hebrew tradition, they all thought it was Jeremiah. Even before Jesus was born, the book was attributed to him. So, for lack of a better option, we're going to say Jeremiah wrote the book. But we're not going to die on that hill. He may have, he may not have, but we'll assume he did today. An interesting fact about Lamentations is its literary style. It's written as an acrostic. Anybody remember from their literary classes in school what an acrostic is? Yeah, a few of you? So let me explain. Chapters 1 through 4 are each acrostics of the Hebrew Bible. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We have A, B, C. They have Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. It starts like A, B and changes a little bit. The first chapters 1 and 2 each have 22 verses made up of three lines each, and each of the three lines begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession, 1 through 22. That's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3 is also an acrostic. It's a little bit different. It is the same length as chapters 1 and 2, but each of the three lines begins with that same letter, so A, 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 B, 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 etc. So it ends up being the same length, but it has 66 verses because the translators wanted to make each of those lines into a verse. 
Chapter 4 also has 22 verses, again an acrostic, but each verse is made up of two lines. So it's shorter than the first three chapters, but still an acrostic. The last chapter is the only one that's not an acrostic, but the author kept 22 verses in keeping with the rest of the other chapters. So you have a very specific style that was put into each of these five poems, probably written and spoken individually and then put together into the book of Lamentations. Now, why do we care about that? Except for those of you who teach English or literary analysis like my wife does. Well, the effect of the highly structured writing, which it is, is that it provides a sense of order in the chaos following the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what it does. The writing of the book itself provides order. The author isn't just wailing and crying and blubbering on about how bad things are, which if you read it quickly, you can get that impression. Instead, the author is thinking deeply, reflecting carefully, and writing purposefully about what has happened to Jerusalem in light of his understanding of God, his character, and his word. The writing then reflects an order and a purpose that helps bring peace in the midst of chaos. It's subtle, yet it's clear, and it's a reminder that God is still in control when things are falling apart. It's a pointer to the sovereign plan and nature of God, which can be trusted even when things are falling apart all around you and you don't understand exactly what's going on. So even the literary style of the book itself has something to offer to us, not just for that day, but for us, for any of us who have been through periods of chaos where things are falling apart and we cry out to God. So in response to God's judgment then on Judah, in Jerusalem in particular, Lamentations explores the character of God. That's what it's all about. It explores the character of God. And each week we're going to look at a different attribute of God. This week is the holiness of God. Week two will be the mercy, then the goodness, then the patience, and finally the grace of God. Because that's what the book is about, exploring God's character. Chapter one then, as we jump in, and we'll look at verses 18 through 22 specifically. We're not going to look at the whole thing. Because I'm also going to take us to Isaiah. So we're going to look at two main passages today. Chapter 1 of Lamentations then indicates very clearly Jerusalem's destruction is a direct result of her sin and rebellion against God. In verse 12, the city cries out, Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which, notice, the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So there's clear recognition of the fact God has sovereignly brought to pass the disastrous consequences that the city is facing. Jump in at verse 18. Let's look at the city's response to what God's judgment has been. Verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. This is a key verse for all of chapter 1. In his lament, Jeremiah personifies the city as if it were a lady, a woman speaking. That's how the whole book is going to look. So you have to understand that. She's speaking. It's Jeremiah personifying Jerusalem as a woman. She points to her suffering. In particular here, there's lots of suffering, but here specifically she says, my next generation has been carried off into captivity. There is no future, no hope for us. The generation is gone. And that's what they did. Jerusalem says, this is how I'm suffering. But notice... She confesses her sin. Did you see that? I have rebelled against his word. At times, at times, Judah had followed God and had been faithful to his covenant under certain godly kings like Hezekiah, Josiah. 
But the record of Scripture indicates that Judah eventually became more sinful than even the pagan heathen nations around her that God had kicked out, even more sinful than they were. Second Chronicles 33.9, the king was Manasseh at the time, says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom God had destroyed before the people of Israel. That's the record of Scripture. And here's a list of some of the things he did according to 2 Kings 21. He erected altars for Baal. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, the stars, the moon. He burned his son as an offering, child sacrifice. He used fortune-telling omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers, wizardry. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's the record of Manasseh. Therefore, Jeremiah indicates here in Lamentations, the Lord is in the right. That's how he starts verse 18. The Lord is in the right to have brought devastation and destruction to Jerusalem. The NIV, I think, translates it, the Lord is righteous to have done what he did. This is the start of forgiveness, of healing, of restoration, because it's admitting fault and guilt before God. We have to start here. And I know Jeremiah, when he's writing this, He's personifying the city to say it. It's as if he wants the city to say it. He's like, follow me in crying out to God this way. Follow my example. He was a godly man. But he took on himself looking at the sin of his people and said, cry out to God like this. And so the readers of his prophetic writings are supposed to identify and say, I am that city. I am the one who should cry out. Forgive me, Lord. I have sinned. Verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Again, it's poetical language, so we have to understand. Who are Jerusalem's lovers? They're the surrounding nations. They're the surrounding nations to whom Israel looked for political help, military help, when Nebuchadnezzar invaded. God saw Judah's dependence on foreign nations rather than on him. He saw it as religious adultery. And you see that all through the Old Testament. What's interesting is during the siege of Jerusalem, there was a tremendous famine. It says here they sought food to revive their strength. Nebuchadnezzar effectively starved the city to death. And I'll say it briefly and then we'll move on. There is record that people even, I'll say it this way for the small ones, consumed their offspring because of the devastation and the times. Horrible, horrible experience. Her leaders, priests and elders, it says, were victims, even targets, just like the rest of the people. Verse 20, So what does Jerusalem do? Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. Building on the confession of sin in verse 18, Jerusalem acknowledges again, I have been very rebellious. I've named some of the things that happened. There's no defense, there's no argument for the sin, there's just straightforward admittance of guilt. Again, This is where we must start. So she turns to the Lord, she being Jerusalem, and cries out to help. Look, O Lord, I am in distress. The sword of Nebuchadnezzar, when he finally got in, killed many, many people in addition to the famine. What we see here personified in the city of Jerusalem, as in the voice of Jeremiah, is actually a model for all of us, all people, all times, all places. Acknowledge and repent from sin and cry out to God as the only source of hope. That's the formula. That's always been the formula. That's what God has always wanted. That's what he wants from us too. Verse 21. 
They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Jerusalem here feels the isolation of her situation. The nations, they're the other ones. They heard my groaning. The nations were happy to see her exiled to Babylon. We have records in history of the other nations being glad to see Jerusalem fall. She, Jerusalem admits, this is exactly what you warned would happen. Did you catch that? You have brought the day you announced. When was that announced? Oh my goodness, if you know any of your Old Testament, prophet after prophet warned this is what was going to happen. If you turned your back on the Lord, if you said we will follow our own ways and worship the gods of the nations around us, this is what would happen. Even Moses leading the people out of Egypt into the promised land, Deuteronomy 28, warned when you go into the promised land, if you turn your back on God and his covenant, these curses will fall upon you. That was hundreds of years earlier, 1445, and he warned what would happen. This is some of what it says, Deuteronomy 28. This is Moses warning the people. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your your fathers have known. This was in their prophetic writings. They all knew it. And so Jeremiah says, you brought the day you said would come. You brought it. You warned us. We had plenty of warning. And then lastly, verse 22. Let all their evil doing come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Jerusalem says, I'm getting exactly what I deserved. You have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. There's no defense of her actions. She knows she's done wrong. And the chapter ends with the city pleading with God to bring the Satan judgment to all the other nations who are characterized by evil because God shows no partiality. We call them the chosen people. (laughs) God shows no partiality. They were responsible before God because they had his word and they knew what to do and they chose not to. Now, at first reading, it may seem to be a bit over the top for God to punish Jerusalem so severely. Death by starvation, sword, exile, complete and utter destruction of the city, the temple, the palace. Right? I mean, your first thought is, this is R-rated stuff for Hollywood. Verses 11 and 12 describe the situation like this. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Can you imagine? Here's my precious heirloom from Grandma. I need a loaf of bread. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. That's that's, uh, verses 11 and 12. It was a desperate situation under the hand of God's judgment. Jeremiah calls it fierce anger of God. But the key, the key to making sense of this anger and judgment of God lies in understanding the holiness of God. And I said that's where we were headed today. For that, we need to turn to Isaiah. If you have your Bible turn, we'll put the verses on the screen. We'll just look at the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 6. 
Remember, Isaiah was 740 B.C., about 150 years earlier. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm using the NIV now, the version. King Uzziah died in 740 B.C. He lived, he, he was king for about 40 years, so he lived a long time. Isaiah says, I'm going to go to the temple today. Don't know what prompted him to go. He decided to go to the temple. He got more than he bargained for. He saw the Lord in a vision, some vision that God gave him. He saw the Lord. And this became his calling to office as prophet. This is where Isaiah becomes a prophet. King Uzziah, in all his glory and long-lived splendor, was no match for what Isaiah saw. He says he saw the Lord, Adonai in Hebrew. Not an earthly king, God himself. High and exalted because he has no equal. Seated on a throne because he is the king of kings. And note, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I had no idea what that meant. You know what that means? The train of his robe filled the temple. It'd be hard to walk around it. That's not the point. When kings conquered other kings, and they had city-states, so you would conquer a city. Each king had their own city. When they conquered that king, they cut off their robe, and they sewed it to the back of their own to make it longer. And it was a demonstration of all the cities and states they'd conquered. And the longer it got, the more glory and prominence for that king. Isn't that cool? I mean, unless you're the one that was conquered. So how long is the Lord's train? Fills the temple. This temple is gigantic. His train fills the temple, which is an indication of what? That he's king of kings, ruler of all, conqueror of every other king, the one true king. All kings submit to him. That's what that vision means. Verse 2, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Seraphs are heavenly beings who have a special role to play in declaring the glory of God. They are pure angelic beings, get this, with more honor and glory than your average angel. Like it wouldn't be cool to see an average angel. But they are greater than your average angel. Their name appears only here in the Bible, although Revelation 4 probably is speaking of them as well because they're very, very similar. According to the New Bible Commentary, seraph means fiery one. That's their name, fiery one. They must have been incredible to see. One commentator says they're fiery guardians of the holiness of God. And they have six wings, and each pair has a different purpose. Did you catch that? Two cover their faces. Why? Because they cannot look directly upon the glory of God. Even as pure angelic beings, they are not permitted to look directly at the glory of God because they are creatures, and he is the uncreated one. And out of submission and humility, they cannot look directly at him. With two, they cover their feet, a reference to their humility in the presence of God. Remember what Moses had to do at the burning bush? Same idea. Your feet are representations that you are a creature. He is not a creature. He's the creator. And so they cover their eyes because they cannot see his glory, and they cover their feet out of submission to him. Four wings were just so they could be in his presence without being consumed. And the last two were just pragmatic so they could fly. They must have been incredible to see. And in fact, look what their voices were like. Verse 3, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. says in verse 4, It shook the place. So they're fiery, but their voices are also incredible. 
Now, why were they saying holy? We sang it this morning. The word used here is holy. What does it mean? It primarily means separate or other. Separate or other. Commentator R.C. Sproul says this, God's holiness is more than separateness. His holiness is also transcendent, exceeding usual limits. When the Bible calls God holy, it means that God is transcendentally separate. He's so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way, unquote. But it also carries the idea of absolute purity. So it's not just other, not just separate. It's also absolute purity. So to describe God as holy is to say that he is a being completely different from you and from me, whose very essence is one of total and absolute purity in every way. He has a transcendent purity about him that we don't even understand. But, but get this, holiness is not actually an attribute of God like loving or just or merciful. Those are attributes of God. They're character qualities of God. He's good, he's faithful, he's loving, he's just. Holy is who he is. It's not an attribute. It's who he is. It describes his very being. Sproul says this, when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. It's who he is. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is, unquote. So we shouldn't just say he's holy, loving, just, merciful, good, faithful. We should just rattle those off. If we're to be accurate according to Scripture, we should say God's love is holy, God's mercy is holy, God's faithfulness is holy. He has a holy goodness. All of his attributes are holy because holy describes who God is. It is not a character quality that he contains. You see the difference? It is a holy love because it is a love unlike beyond anything we know. He has a holy goodness, a goodness that we don't fully understand, a separate goodness. So God is holy, but it's a holy love, a holy goodness. And notice he's called holy three times by the seraphim. Why? They they were stuttering. They couldn't get it out. They weren't sure people figured out what they were saying. Why are they saying it three times? Same way we do in English. In Hebrew, you repeat something for emphasis. It's repeated for emphasis. So we shouldn't understand that God is just holy. He's so holy, we can't call him holy just once. It has to be repeated. He's so other. He's so different. He's so completely unlike you and like me that you have to repeat it three times. It is as if human language is unable to communicate just how holy God is. We don't know what to say, so we repeat it three times. We're straining at the limits of language to describe God adequately. That's what's going on. And here's what's even more amazing. According to Revelation 4, the seraphim do this continually. They never stop. Revelation 4, 8 says, Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's their one job, and they do it continually forever. Why? Why? Well, we can't possibly understand it all, but we can say this. God is so utterly holy in every way that that very truth must be proclaimed over and over and over forever, and yet it still 
fails to do justice to who he is, it will not adequately describe the greatness and the glory of Almighty Holy God. That is our God. Which is why we don't take the Lord's name in vain. Which is why we don't call him the old man in the sky. Right? This is your God. The seraphim alone are enough to make you tremble. And they're nothing compared to God. Verse 4, At the sound of their voices, the seraphim, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you imagine the voices of these fiery seraphim are so powerful that the very foundations of this temple shook, and they aren't the impressive ones on the scene. What an incredible, overwhelming experience this was for Isaiah. Notice that all of his senses were involved. He says, I saw the Lord. Verse 1, his eyes. Verse, uh, his ears. And they were calling to one another at the sound of their voices, it says in verses 3 and 4. Then his nose, the entire temple was filled with smoke. He could smell it. Touched, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And lastly, in verse 7, taste, he touched my mouth. His entire sensual categories, everything that he experiences was overwhelmed by the presence of Almighty God. So how does he react? Like you and I would have reacted. Woe to me, the next verse says, verse 5, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's reaction is both instantaneous and strange. It's curious until we dig more deeply into it. He calls curses on himself. That's what woe is. Remember Jesus saying, woe to you Pharisees? He was cursing the Pharisees for their actions. Isaiah curses himself. Now why would he curse himself? It makes no sense at all until we understand what's going on. He's immediately conscious of his sin in the presence of the Holy One. Immediately he can think of nothing else other than what? His sin. Because he's in perfect light. And what does light show? Impurities, right? You think the room's clean until you turn the light on. And then you see more things that you have to sweep up and clean. The holiness of God is like a blazing light that displayed all the impurities of Isaiah's heart. And he was exposed before God, unable to hide who he really was. And that's what he sensed at his core. Keep in mind, Isaiah is the one God is choosing to be his prophet. But he doesn't sense his worthiness in this moment when he's confronted with God. He senses his filthiness before God. And Isaiah specifically referred to his lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. That would be his calling, to speak the very words of God. And yet it's right there where he feels his dirtiness the most, his unclean lips, because he knows he has uttered things that have been blasphemous to God, that have not held up the standard of who God is. He senses it instantly. What he is experiencing right now when he curses himself, says, I'm ruined, I'm done, I'm destroyed, I'm going to die. Effectively, he thought he was going to die. What he is experiencing at that moment, we call the fear of the Lord. You've heard it throughout Scripture, and you're like, what's the fear of the Lord? This is the fear of the Lord. Now, let me give you a couple other quick examples as we finish of people who experience the fear of the Lord, because I want to I bring this home. So look at Job, Job 42. We'll just look at the first few verses. <clears throat> then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God had asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job responds, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. 
things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God had asked him, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All of Job was about an innocent man suffering and him wanting an audience with God to state his case. Right? That's what Job's about. If he would just show up and talk to me man to man, I would state my case before him and God would say, yeah, this was unfair what I did to you. Job says, just give me an audience with God and I'll state my case. I have been innocent and I have served him faithfully. Just show up, God, so I could talk to you face to face. So God shows up at the end of Job, right? He does show up. And what's Job's reaction? A completely different response than he told everyone he was going to have. Basically, he shut up. He says, my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I repent and despise myself. When God finally revealed himself to Job, instead of stating his case and arguing with God, he had self-loathing and repentance. He knew that was the only appropriate response before Almighty Holy God. You see how it was instantaneous? Instantaneously, he knew this is the only appropriate response. Last example. We'll take it from Peter. Go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 5. I'll just read the first eight or nine verses. You know the story, but I want you to listen to it. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out, had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toil all night and took nothing. And you hear this old fisherman saying, "Uh, It's not going to work. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? Peter's reaction to this miracle is not what I would have expected. If I didn't know that verse came, I would have said, number one, he would have been excited over the haul of fish. He's a fisherman, it's his trade. And number two, he would have worshipped Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. You must be the Messiah. Is that what Peter does? I'll follow you? What does Peter say? Go away from me. Not I'll follow you, go away from... Rather than worshiping Jesus, he wanted to escape from his presence. Why? Because again, he knew he was in the presence of the holy. And what he sensed was his guilt, sin, and shame. Do you see that? Depart from me, I am a sinful man. He couldn't stand to be with Jesus because he was so conscious of his sin. When God showed up, Peter couldn't handle the experience any better than Isaiah or Job could. John MacArthur, pastor, says it this way. No one can stand in the presence of God without becoming profoundly and devastatingly aware of his own wretchedness and sinfulness. If we don't understand the holiness of God, we don't understand our sinfulness. And we don't understand how heinous it is and we don't understand the consequences of it. To see even the smallest glimpse of God's holiness is to be devastated. Devastated. 
Isaiah would never be the same. Never. Neither would anybody else. Remember that old song? It's not that old, but it came out maybe 15 years ago. I can only imagine. It was about when I get to heaven, will I dance? Will I kneel? Will I be quiet? Right? I guarantee you what will happen. According to Scripture, you will fall on your faces before Almighty God. Maybe there will be dancing later. But the first thing you'll do is what every single person in Scripture has ever done when confronted by God Almighty. And that is to fall on your faces before Him. So, the question we need to ask today is whether you and I have been devastated by God's holiness. Or, put it maybe more simply, do you view sin in your life as seriously as God does? The Bible makes it clear all of us have sinned. Without the intervention of Jesus, each of us would stand condemned before God, deserving of eternal damnation. God's holiness demands that he respond to sin with what Jeremiah called fierce anger. This isn't a cosmic temper tantrum. This is the perfectly appropriate response of a holy God against the rebellion of mankind. It is righteous anger. And yet, and yet, I have to close with good news. I have to, because that's what this book is all about. The Bible makes it clear that believers in Jesus will not face the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. How does he do that? Most of you know, some of you may not, by taking on himself, on himself, our sin and guilt. Isaiah 53 says it this way. Listen to the pronouns. Listen to the pronouns through all these statements. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, Jesus took on himself this righteous wrath, this anger of God that was justifiably meant for me, for you. Jesus' sacrifice, Scripture says, propitiated God. It just means satisfied his righteous anger. That's what that means. Romans 3.23-25 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The death of Jesus at its core was a substitute sacrifice for you and for me, whereby the righteous anger of God was satisfied, propitiated through a perfect, sinless sacrifice that just so happened to be his only son. In other words, God sacrificed his own son to satisfy his own anger because he chose to love you. Just think about that. We have sinned greatly, but we have a greater Savior. Amen? Friends, my challenge this morning is we cannot excuse the sin in our lives. We can't excuse the sin in our lives. Our sin against a holy God is so evil that it required the death of the Son of God to satisfy the anger of God.
We dare not make light of that sacrifice by pretending our sin is no big deal. Would you pray with me, please?